Uh, good morning, my name is Drew Bennett. I'm one of the pastors here at Church of the Redeemer. It's good to see you this morning. Uh, this fall, we are going to be looking at the life of David in the books of First and Second Samuel in the Old Testament of our Bible. We're calling the series David and David's Son. David and David's Son. Because Israel's hope, okay, if you, if you think about the story of the Bible, Israel, the nation of Israel, their hope in a king, which you see in places like Psalm 72, which we read this morning, where the psalmist is praying for God to bless the king and that through the king, justice and mercy would come to the people and they would flourish and, and, and really uh, find prosperity and hope. But Israel's ultimate hope in a king was fulfilled in David in the Old Testament scriptures. Um, but ultimately that hope is fulfilled in the one greater than David, the Messiah, who the Bible calls the son of David. Uh, and of course, we know this to be Jesus Christ. So over and over again in the Gospels, Jesus is called the son of David. Son of David, son of David. So the story of David is just part of a larger story in the Bible of the coming of the true king into the world to make the world whole again. That's kind of the the trajectory of this series. Okay, now this morning, before we really begin to dig into David's life next week, we need to take a week and look at Saul, who was actually king in Israel before David. And what Saul's life is going to show us from this passage here in 1 Samuel 15, which we'll read in just a minute. Uh, Saul's life is going to show us something in contrast to David. From David, we're going to live how to really live well and serve God. But from Saul, we're going to learn today how sin can absolutely ruin a life. Because Saul was chosen to be king in Israel first, but there were sinful dynamics and patterns that were a part of his life, uh, which were so self-destructive that by the time of his death at the end of 1 Samuel, he really has become a monster. And so where he showed at the beginning uh, incredible promise, and he really was a hope to the people, by the end he was just a complete disaster. Uh, And so we're going to look at kind of these sinful dynamics and patterns this morning from this passage in 1 Samuel 15. I'd ask you to read along with me. I lost my reader to the the children's ministry this morning, so I'm going to be reading the passage. Um, Follow along in your worship folder if you can read six-point type there. Uh, Or if not, then you can follow in your Bible or be on the screen behind me, okay? So let's read together from 1 Samuel. Verse 15, beginning in uh, chapter 15, beginning in verse 4. And we're going to skip a few verses, but basically we're going to read the whole passage because it really is a a good story. Okay, here we go. Verse 1. And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what... Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, children and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them at Telaim. Verse 7, if I can find it in my Bible. And Saul, let's, let's go to this. Uh, verse 7, Saul defeated the Amalekites. From Havilah, as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fatted calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. And the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me. And has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning. And it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel. And behold, he set up a monument for himself, and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul. 
And Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord, I have performed the commandments of the Lord. And Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Samuel said, They have, they have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. And then Samuel said to Saul, Stop. I will tell you what the Lord said, said to me this night. And he said to him, Speak. And Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what is evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord has sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen. The best, that's, that's right? That's the sound of Saul. The bus, you know, they just got put under the bus, right? The people. The people took of the spoil, the sheep. He just threw them under the bus. Oxen. The best of the, of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, "Has the Lord, as uh, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as of the sin of div- divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, He has also rejected you from being king." Saul said to Samuel, "I have sinned." For I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me, that I may worship the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized, I mean, it just gets pathetic at this point. Saul seized the skirt of his robe, and it tore. And Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day, and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also, the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Then he said, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel, and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul, and Saul bowed before the Lord. Then Samuel said, Bring me here, bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. (laughs) Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house in Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death, but Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. This is God's word. This is a tough passage, right? I I could hear the out there a couple times. And really what we learn from this passage is really, we, we learn a lot about the dynamics and patterns of sin. And so this passage really te- teaches us three things about sin, okay? Three things about sin this morning that I want us to see. First, what it is. Secondly, how it works. And thirdly, how we overcome it. So what it is, sin. What it is, how it works, and how we overcome it. And really the main thing here, what the passage teaches us is, is about what sin is, okay? Now at the beginning, if you look way back at the beginning of the chapter Samuel comes to Saul with specific instructions. Verse 1, listen to the words of the Lord. So Saul's marching orders are just this. He is to go to war against the Amalekites. And this was to be, we, re, we learn as we read this passage, an act of divine retribution for Amalek's attacking of Israel on their way out of Egypt. 
towards the land of promise. And that, that's in, you can find that in, in Exodus chapter 17. But also we're told that Amalek is a man who has made other people childless. I mean, he is cr- cruel and ruthless and has caused all kinds of problems and trouble in the area. And so, so God is coming against him through Saul in an act of divine justice. But even so, probably the most shocking part of the passage, right, is when you start to read in verse 3 that Saul is commanded by God to destroy everything, men and women and children and infants and ox and on and on. And we read that and we, you know, we think that's just terrible. But you have to understand the cultural situation that this is written in. Okay, the Lord is telling Saul to go to war, to destroy the Amalekites who have been doing all these horrible things. But... What, what is meant by the commands to destroy everything and even, you know, all the way down to the camels and, and to devote the gold and all of the loot and the plunder to the Lord. Saul is meant to go to war, but he is not to go to war for profit. You see, the kings of the day went to war for the bounty and for the booty. They went to war for the plunder that they could get and the way that they could rule over this people, conquer them, and then take all of their goods and become rich themselves. But Saul is to go to war as an instrument of God's justice not for his own personal gain. Right? He is, to, he is to go to war as an instrument of God bringing justice to Amalekite and not so that he can become rich himself. And that's why he's told to destroy everything, to ensure that he's motivated by justice and not selfish gain. So you see, this is what's happening here. So God says, you know, you're not going to take the plunder. You're not going to be able to carry the gold. You know, you're not going to be able to carry the women of the men that you conquer back as wives. You're not going to be richer because of this, Saul. These things are to be devoted to destruction, verse 3. And that's a word. It refers to the setting aside of certain things for religious use. So Saul's told, go to war against the Amalekites, destroy everything, and devote even the gold and the, the goods to the Lord. They're devoted to him. Samuel's instructions are clear. Saul doesn't listen. He doesn't pay attention to God's commands. He doesn't obey because we're told that he spares Agag the king. And it's interesting, verse 9, he spares the best of the sheep and the oxen and the fatted calves and the lambs and all that was good. The stuff that wasn't so desirable, oh, okay, now we can, you know, we'll go ahead and sacrifice that stuff. But the good stuff, we're going to keep that. Now, here's the mistake Saul makes. Okay, and the clue in the text is in the word performed. It's interesting. If you look at verses 10 and verse 13 again, God tells Samuel that Saul has not performed his commands, verse 10. And yet when Samuel shows up in Gilgal, Saul greets him with this statement in verse 13, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. So, I mean, which is it? Right? Which which is it? And what's the point of the confusion? See, and the hint is in that word perform. The hint about what the passage is trying to teach us about sin is in that word perform. To, to us, you know, this word perform. A performance is what? It's a play or a concert or a dance recital where, you know, it's actors or singers or dancers or whoever doing their, you know, actors saying their lines, dancers performing their steps, singers going, you know, performing their songs. That's a performance. It's a very similar concept here. In this Hebrew word, it, it had reference to a priest who would stand up in the temple or the the tabernacle or the holy place, and he would perform sacrifices or other ceremonial aspects of the worship of Yahweh. The the performance would be what a priest would do in the worship of God. And that's an important point in understanding Saul's confusion because in his mind, the important thing, what God really was after, was the sacrifice. 
right? So he says, I've performed the command. I've done what God told me to do. We've made the sacrifices to him, but God wanted wasn't the sacrifices. We're told in verse 22, what God wanted was the obedience. He wanted Saul's heart to be obedient, to listen and obey the commands that he had been given. He wanted Saul to perform his commandments, not his sacrifices. And we're told in verse 11, in response to this, God says, I regret that I've made Saul king, for he turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. So God is going to take away his throne. Saul, God is now coming in judgment against Saul. The way he came in judgment through Saul against the Amalekites for the same reason, because Saul has not obeyed his commands. The Lord's going to take away his throne and give it to another, a man after his own heart. In other words, a man who's going to follow God's commands with all of his strength and all of his heart. And this is God's judgment on Saul for his sin. So the lesson for us is just this, okay? The lesson for us this morning is that God demands obedience, and if we do not perform his commands, then he will bring judgment to us too, like he did to Saul. And now we're going to get into, what is that? I thought salvation was by grace through faith in Christ alone. Absolutely, that statement doesn't conflict with the other, and there's, there's, that's hard, but I just want us to hear it, that, that I think what the passage is teaching us is that God demands obedience, and if we do not perform his commands, then he will bring judgment to us in the same way he did to Saul. And I have to say that, I think, because we have a Christianity today where you can come to church a few times a year, and you can drop a few dollars in the offering plate, and you can go through the motions, and then, you know, that's about all it takes. And it's really no different than what Saul thought about what God requires here in this passage. You make the necessary sacrifices, you perform the right rituals, you kind of go through the motions and do all the right things, and that's, that's enough. And for us, a lot of times we think if you follow the rules and do the necessary Christian things, that makes you a Christian. And the problem is, is we, I, don't, I, hope, I hope you realize, we are in the middle of a day where the prevailing theology in the church is you don't have to obey the commands of God to call yourself a Christian. You just walk an aisle, you pray a prayer, you go through some religious experience, you do something, and that is enough. And I think the scripture just stands directly against that. And the result is that in the church, as a general rule, there is no expectation of obedience. I mean, Jesus says in Matthew 28, 18, and 19, go into all the world, baptizing and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded of you. And yet we still are a part of a Christianity or a Christian subculture or whatever it might be where there is, at the end of the day, really no expectation for obedience. Just an example of this, of how we can just hollow this out. I was reading this past Tuesday from our community Bible reading in Titus 3. And I don't know if you read Titus 3, but here are the first couple of verses of Titus 3, verses 1 and 2. Paul, Paul, ma- uh, Paul makes five commands of the Christians that he's writing to, or to Titus and through Titus to the people. And here are the five commands. Number one. He says, remind the church to be, number one, submissive to rulers and authorities. Number two, to speak evil of no one. Number three, to avoid quarreling. Four, to be gentle. And five, to show perfect courtesy to all people. Don't you love how practical that is? And I wonder if we were to take a poll of people who do not share our faith commitment, we were to say, you know, when you think of a Christian, what do you think of? I wonder how many of them say, wow, you know, those people are really submissive to their rulers and authorities. I mean, they pray for, they, they never complain about President Obama. They pray for him. You know, I'm not, we should, of course we should critique. But are we submissive? You know, you know what, they, those people, what, what I think of when I think of a Christian is those people never speak evil of anybody. You know, and they're, they're so nice, they never quarrel. 
Are you starting to get what I'm saying? They're gentle and sweet. You know, I mean, sometimes, you know, we, we read, I read passages like that, and I think, oh, my God, I mean, what if, what if we just said, okay, my, my goal, my goal for this next week, my goal for this next week, I'm going to be completely intolerant of ever speaking anything unkind about another person. Can you imagine? I mean, and I think it goes to the heart of, well, this is us, too. I mean, we, we are, we, in the same way, we, we have this propensity where we, we go through our Christian experience and we live as Christians, but without really the expectation of obedience. And so we, we show up on Sundays to do uh, whatever, you know, to perform sacrifices or do whatever we think is required of us, and then it really has no effect on how we live our lives uh, all the other days of the week. I mean, there's really just this huge disconnect between our quote-unquote religious life and, and everything we do on a daily basis. Now, I have, I have two analogies to help you understand this, and one is a man's analogy and one is a woman's analogy, because I was told if I went with a man's analogy, the women would be like, well, I don't know. What, yeah, Okay? And the first one is, if you've ever seen one of my favorite clips of any movie all time is the clip of the baptism scene at the end of the first Godfather movie. Any of the men, you with me? And if you've never seen it, you, here's what's happening. Robert De Niro and the family who are, you know, the mob, obviously, is at this christening ceremony for uh, this, this child of whom he is going to be the godfather to. And he's standing in this beautiful church. And, you know, it's all this ornate, gorgeous thing. And the priest is up there, and he's speaking in Latin. And he's doing the whole thing. And he says, you know, do you believe in the Father? Yes. Do you believe in Jesus the Son? Yes. Do you believe in the Holy Spirit? Yes, I do. And he's taking all these vows as he stands there to be the godfather to this child. And, there's a, and the, the, the music is building. And all this is just this incredibly dramatic tension thing. And then it gets to this point, and the priest asks, do you renounce the works of Satan? And he says, yes, I do, and the music stops. And as he's doing this, it cuts away to that as he is there claiming to renounce the works of Satan, at the same exact moment, he has sent his henchmen to go and to murder all of his enemies. And, I thought, oh, and it's just chilling. Now, I was told that the women wouldn't quite, I would have a hard, I would have a hard time getting the women, especially in the room, to see what, what I think the, the movie's telling us, what I think this passage is telling us, is that is us. There's the same propensity in us. And so if I could do, if I could, uh, do a woman, I'm going to do another analogy for the women, and that is I went last Sunday evening to watch this movie my wife wanted me to see called The Help. Uh, and I didn't think I would really enjoy it very much, but uh, It's amazing. And I know there's a group going at 2.20 this afternoon, right? You need to go see this movie. It is, un, I mean, it is just amazing. And it really is the story of a, of a group of women uh, who are just mean. But who, for all practical purposes, are very nice. And they're put together. And they're, they're, they're fine, upstanding members of society. And there's a point at the end of the movie. It's about racism and, and whatnot. And there's a point at the end of the movie where the, the lead character, who by the time you get, you just hate her. You know, and you hate her because she hates people. And so you're a hater of someone who hates people. Which is just great. Right? And you get to the end of the movie, and at the very end of the movie, there's a line that's wonderful. And, and one, of the, one of the black ladies in the movie, she confronts this woman, and she says, you're a godless woman. Aren't you tired? I mean, you're a godless woman. And, that, and that's the point. These women in this movie, and I'm not going to ruin it for you because you need to go see it, but these women in this movie, they're good, upstanding members of, of the community who joined the Junior League and went to church and even raised funds for the African Orphans Fund, but they hated the people across town who had a different color skin than they did. 
In other words, you can't claim to be a Christian if you go to Sunday school on Sunday and you're smug and condescending and hateful towards people on the other days of the week. You're a godless person if you do that. And so we've got to make the same adjustment in our thinking that Saul was, Samuel was trying to make with Saul. Saul is willing to be obedient where it profited him. He's willing to be obedient to a point, uh, to the point where it advances his kingship. He's, in other words, what's happening here is he's trying to control God. He thought it was enough to go to church and say a few prayers. He doesn't understand that sin is, isn't just breaking the rules. It's something much deeper than that. It's a heart attitude that refuses to listen and obey, that insists on doing its own thing, right? That, that will use even religion to try to control God and put him in its debt. I mean, you see all the synonyms in the passage in verses 23 and, and on. Religion is, is rebellion. It, in other words, it's hating, it's resenting authority and setting your will against it. It's presumption. Literally, that word means stubbornness or strong-willed, a strong-willed child, we say, right? That's, what do we mean? That's a euphemism for a sinful child. Right? It's rejecting God's word, sin is. Sin is transgressing it is going beyond the limits of God's law. I remember when I was 12 and I went to the National Cathedral in Washington, D.C. I was away from my parents for a week, and uh, there was a sign that said, do not go beyond this point. But we had heard that there were secret passageways in the back of the National Cathedral. So we, as soon as we could sneak away from our chaperones, we were over the thing. And came out and kind of climbed and came out, and we were on top of the National Cathedral kind of looking around. And then we looked down, and there were all of our teachers staring up at us like, what are you people doing? Get down! You know, and, and we scared us to death. Right? There's a line. Do, what, the, the, the surest way to get a boy in trouble is put a, a, a sign that says, it's dangerous to go past this sign. What's the first thing they're going to do? Oh, this is going to be fun. And that's what sin is. See, that's the metaphor for sin. And the truth is, is you can be a very religious person and, and your heart be rising up in rebellion against God and your religion be a strategy for gaining advantage over him. I mean, sin is the refusal to bow our will to God or anybody else. And even Saul's obedience here, really, at the end of the day, was an attempt to put God in his debt. What do I have to do to get God on my side? Okay, he wants a few sacrifices. Great, I can do that. Okay? But you see, he's wanting to control God. He's wanting to use God to get what he really wants. And that's a completely different thing than saying, Lord, what you say, I will do. And what the scripture's teaching us is if you live, if you live without addressing the sinful tendencies of your heart, there will be a day where God, like he did with Saul, will bring you to judgment. And it won't just be the kingdom that gets stripped away from you. It'll be everything you ever thought was wonderful. So the passage teaches us about sin, what it is, but it also teaches us about how it works in the heart. Or, I mean, it gives us an anatomy of sin. So sin works like this, okay? Here's what the second thing we learn here is that the way sin works is is it hides the truth of its sinfulness from the heart. In other words, it causes the heart to become deceitful. And this is exactly what we see happen to Saul. Now, look at the evidence here. And this is just just so fantastic. It's almost comical. It's really, I kind of laughed when I read, kind of dug into this. Verse 13, Saul greets Samuel. He insists he's been obedient. Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandments of the Lord. Verse 14, Samuel rebukes Saul. Saul, you've not been obedient because I hear sheep. Verse 15, Saul's response, well, well, some of the people decided to keep the sheep. But we sacrificed the rest of them. So yes, I've been obedient. I love verse 16. This is my favorite part. In verse 16, Samuel says, Saul, stop. Stop. Right? Do you hear this? Saul, I've been obedient. Samuel, no, you've not. Saul, 
yeah, well, you know, there's some, but I really have been obedient. No, no, you're not. I promise I've been obedient. Saul, stop. Stop. And then even after he rebukes him a second time, Saul comes back a third time after, after the long rebuke by Samuel. I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. Now, if you're a parent, you probably read this and you laugh because this is the way this goes. And I could make fun of any of my kids, but I'll just pick one. Canaan, right? Canaan. Canaan, come here, please. Yes, Dad. I thought I told you to clean your room. I did clean my room. Really? Well, then why are there still clothes on the floor? Oh, well, those are Isaac's clothes. No, they're your clothes. No, they're Isaac's clothes. Go over and pick up the clothes. Oh, these are my clothes. Yeah. I'm sorry, I guess I didn't see them, but I did clean my room. See, what's happening is Saul's having a hard time admitting the truth about himself. Tim Keller, who is a pastor in our denomination who preached a sermon on this text, he says, the, he says it this way. He says, the human heart has an unlimited capacity to hide the truth from itself if it's too painful. I mean, Saul's been caught, but he refuses to accept the truth because the truth is too painful. And let me give you a couple, another couple of illustrations. One serious, one funny. Um, Ashley's been telling me for months, something's wrong with the electricity in our house. No, it, it, it's fine. It's fine. No, I'm telling you, something is messed up with the electricity. Listen, you worry too much. Everything is fine. So I'm, I'm on the road this week, and she calls me. Um, I just turned on Abby's bedroom light, and the bathroom across the hall came on. Okay, something's wrong with the lights. Right? You're right. I'm sorry. You're right. So I finally am having to kind of admit the fact that she's right, that something's wrong with the lights. My, my funny story is the way the human heart, the way this works, I've told it before. It's just too funny and too illustrative to pass up. The way the human heart has this unlimited capacity to hide the truth from itself because it's too painful and to try to excuse itself. We had an incident when Abby, who's now six, was much younger, uh, where she got into this phase where she really wanted to cut her hair. And one day, Ashley caught her in the bathroom cutting her hair. She came out of the bathroom and there was a big chunk of her beautiful blonde hair gone. Abby, what happened to your hair? You know? And so Ashley confronts her. Abigail, who cut your hair? Canaan did, Mommy. Canaan, come here, please. Did you cut Abby's hair? No, no, I didn't cut Abby's hair. I don't. Abigail, who cut your hair? Isaac did, Mommy. Isaac, could you come here, please? Did you? No, no. Okay, so Abby's running out of options. Abigail. I'm going to ask one more time. Abby, who cut your hair? Mommy, there were squirrels. And they were looking for nuts. And they just jumped off my hair. Now, I know it's precious, isn't it? Precious. Precious. It's evil. (laughs) That is evil. It's just completely evil because what is it? What is that? That is the heart not being willing to admit the truth. Desperately trying to hide the truth. It's self-deception. And this is the way, this is the way sin works. It works towards self-deception. And what's so chilling about that scene in the Godfather movie and also about the women in the help is they're so self-deceived. They, they're so blind to their sin. They're so convinced 
that they're good religious people because they go to church or they help out in the community or they raise money for African orphans or whatever it might be, but inside they're full of murder and hatred and envy and greed. And it's this self-deception. And you see the warning signs in this passage. It's great. Saul resorts first to blame shifting. Verses 21 and 20, 20 and 21, he says, I, I love it. Samuel confronts him about his sin and Saul's response in verses 20 and 21. I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I've gone on the mission the Lord sent me. I've brought Agag, king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took the spoil. I mean, this is straight out of the Garden of Eden. Adam, what have you done? Have you eaten the tree of the knowledge of the good and evil? Well, God, the woman you gave me to be with me. She took the fruit and gave it to me. This is blame shifting. It's their fault. They're to blame, not me. And when that doesn't work, it's even, it gets even better. He goes on in verses 22, 23 to begin to make excuses. He says, verse 21, the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. Oh, yeah, right. Oh, yeah, right. Well, we haven't done that, but it's because we're going to take those sheep, the best of the sheep, and we're going we're to sacrifice them. We just haven't done it yet. As if Samuel's fooled. You see, he hides behind his religion. He hides behind his morality. He says, we kept the sheep. We disobeyed God so we could obey him. We, we're, we, use, you know, we use religion all the time to deceive ourselves of what's really wrong with us. So, for exact example, yes, 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 I, I'm mean to my wife and my kids, I, I know, and I, I cheat on my taxes, but you know, I'm at church every Sunday. See, that's the danger with religion, see, is it, it's the greatest tool for self-deception that exists because you can use religion to cover up pride, you can use religion to cover up greed, you can use religion to cover up insecurities and selfishness. And what's going on with all of this? I mean, there is a truth that is too painful for Saul to bear, so he's trying to deflect attention away from himself to what the soldiers who were with him had done. It's their fault. He's making excuses, right? He's hiding behind his religion. He's insisting, I'm a good person. And what's the truth? What is it that Saul can't admit to himself? He's a sinner. He's failed as a leader. He's disobeyed God. And so God's going to take the kingdom away from him. And this, is, it's, this truth is just like a death blow to him. It's so painful that he can't admit it. So why? I mean, why? You see, this is the question we really have to ask as we come to this passage. Why do our hearts work so hard to convince us of what we already know to be true, to convince us that we're really not that bad? I mean, why couldn't I admit the truth about the lights in our house to my wife? I can tell you. I mean, I, really, I know why. And it's just this, that men are supposed to know how to fix things around the house, but I don't know how to fix that stuff. So when Ashley says, there's something wrong with the lights, what I hear in my heart, her saying is, there's something wrong with you because you're not man enough to know how to do, deal with this. Right? There are men looking at their wives right now. Right? Do you hear that? No, every, it, there's nothing wrong. Because it felt like a verdict on there being something wrong with me. And if you, if you look where we get to the ground level of what's going on in Samuel's heart in this passage is in verse 17 where a part of the rebuke that Saul's heart, excuse me, a part of the rebuke that Samuel offers to him there in verse 17, and this is kind of the crux of the whole deal, he says there, though you are small in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord has anointed you king over Israel. But the problem is that Saul is still small in his own eyes. Do you see that? He's the king. He's the chosen one of God to rule over the house of Israel, but in his interior life he thinks he's still small. He's insecure and unsure of himself and desperately needs to be affirmed by other people. 
You see, Saul has an inferiority complex. He doesn't understand the grace of God. That's why he can't admit the truth to himself. He thinks God loves only the qualified people. So he's still trying to prove, even against the evidence, that he's great. He's still trying to look great to other people. He's still trying to convince himself in his own heart that he's great because he doesn't understand grace. Because grace is, you were small and God, God made you great. And there are a couple of hints in the passage that this is true of him. In verse 12, we're told that he erects, he, he wins a victory, and the first thing he does is he erects a monument to himself. Because he needs to be celebrated. And then we're told, when, when it really comes down to, the, to, to what is really going on in here in verse 24, when he finally admits his sin, he gives us an insight into his heart and what was going on in his heart. He says, I have sinned, and I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord in your words. Look at verse 24. Because I feared the people and I obeyed their voice. Saul obeyed the voice of the people, not the voice of the Lord, because he needed the approval of the people so badly. He was a slave to their expectations. He couldn't tell them no. He wanted their approval of him as their king more than he wanted to do the right thing. He, he needed the approval of the people because he was still small in his own eyes. See, Saul doesn't yet understand that God makes him king, not because he's the most deserving or the most faithful or the most qualified. It was grace. It was an act of God's sovereign will. And that's what Samuel's saying. How is it that you are still small in your own eyes? You're the king. God chose you. He put his love and his favor upon you, but Saul doesn't yet know the good news of God's love for him. It's not real to his heart yet because he doesn't know the good news of God's love and favor in his life. Then he can't accept the bad news. See, that's what's happening. I mean, that's what's going on. In the Gospel of John, Jesus says to the crowds that are following him, I I do not receive glory from people, he says, but I know that you do not have the love of God in your hearts. How can you believe in me when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes only from God? And Jesus is saying this. He's saying that the reason we're so disobedient and weak in faith is because the love of God's not in our hearts. We're small in our own eyes. The gospel's not real to us. We don't, in other words, we don't know that God loves and approves of us and delights in us in Jesus. Love of God's not in our hearts. We're not resting in his love for us. And as a result, we're constantly going around. Our whole life is the attempt to seek glory from one another. When you're small in your own eyes, when your heart's not resting in the truth of the gospel, you'll be building monuments of glory for yourself. And it could be a number of different things. It might be your kids. It might be your career. It might be your reputation. It might be your morality. Idols and monuments of glory to yourself. And for Saul, it was his military success and his political power and the cheers of the crowd. Those things were his glory. They were the things he were, they were his, the monument to his greatness that he was looking to for worth and significance. And you can do the same thing with a kid or with a job or with relationships or with money or with morality. And if you're small in your own eyes, then you're going to constantly be trying to make them monuments to your greatness. Which is why Samuel calls Saul's arrogance idolatry in verse 23. You'll be trying to use those things to get glory from other people. And when you build your life on you know, some monument, whatever it may be, you won't be able to accept any information that might jeopardize it. And what the Bible's trying to teach us is that this is what we're all doing all the time, and it's destroying our lives. Because when you look to something besides God for your significance, then you make that thing an idol, and you will have no choice but to bow down and worship that thing and serve it in the place of God. And so the sin underneath every sin 
what this passage is revealing to us is just this, that we don't have the love of God in our hearts. We're not resting in God's love for us in Jesus, and so we're trying to build monuments to ourselves, and we're trying to get glory from other people, and it just creates all kinds of destruction. And so what's the solution? And I want to close with this. See, the solution is, if that's true, then the way we overcome these sinful tendencies and patterns in our life is the gospel then has to begin to sink down into our hearts. If, if sin comes from not having the love of God in your heart, then the solution is to have the love of God, to have your heart filled with the love of God for you in Christ Jesus. And that's why I included this passage in Hebrews. So if you would go back to that passage in Hebrews, which we read as an assurance of pardon. I just want you to see uh, one thing from there. When the writer of Hebrews says... Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you've not desired. I mean, do you notice how much those words sound like Samuel's words? God doesn't want sacrifices. He wants obedience. What matters to God is obedience. What we need is an obedient heart. But how do you get one? Because, I mean, I have a hard time being submissive to rulers and authorities and speaking evil of no one and quarreling, not to mention being greedy and not being selfish and not giving in to envy and all the big stuff. God demands obedience. I'm sunk. But what Hebrews says is that there is one who has been obedient. That the obedient king, Jesus, came and he was perfect. He rendered a perfect obedience to God's commandments. And what's absolutely amazing is that what Hebrews is saying in this passage, okay, is that Jesus' obedience doesn't just make him holy. What he dares to say is that Jesus' obedience makes us holy. And when you put your faith in him, okay, when you say to God, accept me because of what Jesus has done, not only does your sin get credited to him, but you get his righteousness. Our record of sin and disobedience becomes his so that his record of perfect obedience can become ours. Isn't that amazing? I mean, the gospel, If you think about Philippians 2 with me for just a minute. The gospel is just this. Jesus Christ was great, but he became small. So that all of us who are small can become great, great in God's eyes, great in God's heart, great in God's affections. And if your faith is in Jesus, you can't be small in your own eyes because the king became nothing so that all of us could become kings. And if you're a Christian, you're a king. Just like Saul. Do you understand? I mean, if you're a Christian, you're a king. And Tim Keller says it this way again. He says, look at the coronations. Look at the wealth. Look at the adulations of the greatest earthly kings in history. That's nothing compared to what we have in Christ and what we will have. He says, a billion years from now, anybody who believes in Jesus will be ruling and reigning over the universe when nobody can quite remember what a Roman emperor was or what a president of the United States was. You see, if the knowledge of that sinks down into your heart, that the king of the universe became small so that we who were small could become kings, this is what Saul doesn't understand, but if it were to come inside of our hearts, if you began to really rest your heart in that truth, what the Bible teaches is that it would begin to dismantle the mechanism of sin and self-deception in your life. Does that make sense? But one last thing, and that is that the tool for this is community. See, what Saul needed was a friend in Samuel. And we need other people to come and give us the bad news about ourselves to break through all the ways our heart is deceiving itself. We need friends. We need community to come in, somebody besides the self, to come in and help me see the things I'm blind to. And so I want to just encourage you, if you find people who love you enough and are courageous enough to help you see the truth about yourself, who come and bring bad news to you, those people are not your enemies, they're your friends. 
And if sin works towards self-deception, then the worst thing you can do is close your life off to other people. To kind of wall your life off for fear of people really, you know. We need one another to be bearers of bad news in each other's lives in order to break through our self-deception and, and, and produce repentance. And that's hard. I mean, it's hard. Whether you're Samuel that's being sent or the Saul that's being confronted, it's hard. And so the only way it works is if your heart is full of the love for God for you in Christ Jesus. See, only the gospel. Only, it's only the gospel that can do this. And so let's pray and celebrate the gospel together. Lord Jesus, we marvel when we consider that you, who were the king of the universe, you who was the king, high and lifted up and exalted above all other rulers and powers and authorities on the earth, you, were told in Philippians chapter 2, did not consider that something to be held on to, to be grasped, but you became nothing and took the nature of a servant and became obedient even unto death in order that we who are weak and sinful and needy might become kings. That is a truth too marvelous for us to, to even comprehend. And so I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come and you would drive it home to our hearts, that it might lead us to repentance, and that we might bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and that you might be glorified in us. Uh, give us obedient hearts. Lord Jesus, come and, and rule and reign over us. Uh, conquer our wandering hearts for the sake of your kingdom, and make us people who delight to obey your law that you might be glorified in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The way you escape, or excuse me, the way you get an obedient heart and escape the judgment that is coming upon all who refuse to bend the knee to the Lord Jesus is not by going and trying and saying, you know what, I'm just going to try harder. It just doesn't work. The way you get an obedient heart and the way you, you really allow the truth of the bad news to come in uh, to, to convince you of your need of one who would save you and to stop building monuments and seeking for glory uh, in everything else besides the love that God has for you. It's just this. It is to, to I will arise and go to Jesus. Uh, that is the way uh, you get an obedient heart. But the promise of the benediction is, is that no matter who you are, no matter how badly you may have blown it, no matter what the record of sin in your life and disobedience in your life might be, that is if you go to him, uh, he stands with arms outstretched because he climbed upon a cross and he stretched out his arms and they nailed him to a cross and he died for you. And so the promise of the benediction is just this, that as I raise my hands over you, if you come to him, he is willing and faithful and longing for you to run to him so that he can accept you and wrap his arms around you. So receive the promise of the benediction then in the interest of believing more deeply in the gospel in order to get a heart that is truly obedient to the commands of the Lord. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.